Kia ora, I'm Emil Donovan, and today on The Detail... A 12-day conflict between the Ethiopian government and regional forces in the northern Tigray region could push the country into a civil war. You know, when you're facing those sorts of issues, it makes our own problems somewhat puts them into perspective. While we are wrapped up dealing with our own problems in our own COVID bubble, one of the most severe humanitarian crises on the planet is unfolding half a world away. According to the United Nations, more than 350,000 people here are experiencing catastrophic food shortages, while nearly 1.8 million others are at emergency levels. It's technically a famine, but the word has been used sparingly, with the Ethiopian government insisting the food shortages are not severe and aid is being delivered. This involves the nation of Ethiopia and internal conflict with a province of the country called Tigray. Uh, According to uh, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, the Ethiopian forces and their Eritrean allies committed a series of war crimes. It's a tragic situation. Tens of thousands of people have died. Hundreds of thousands are starving and millions have fled the country. UN officials have been kicked out. Aid has been turned away by the very politicians whose own citizens are starving. This is a story about political power, about egos and militarism and regime change and the limited options the global community has in trying to help out. Today on the podcast, the causes, events and the brutal human cost of the conflict in Tigray and the bleak outlook on the path to peace. Tigray is a, a province of, of Ethiopia, and um, it's a small province, but it has a, a, a very big influence, or has had a very big influence on Ethiopia's development. David Shearer is a former leader of the Labour Party, who's just returned after four and a half years as the United Nations Mission Chief in South Sudan. People forget that Ethiopia is a very big country. It's 105 million people, and the Tigrayans make up about 7 million of those. They're up in the north of the country. Um, and when the, uh, they ousted the Marxist government back in 1991, it was the TPLF, the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, joining with others that was the uh, spearheaded the, the ousting of the Marxist government. And since then, or after that, for the next 20 years, there was a Tigrayan head of government, Melazanawi, who, who took over the reins. And so Tigrayans have been very dominant in making sure that that, the the political coalition inside of Ethiopia continued. As I say, they they had the leader until Zenawi died. Uh, They were the leaders of the military. Um, They exerted a a very powerful role. Um, And when Abe Ahmed, the the current prime minister, came in, um, he started turning off the tap, and and really he was a Romo. He wasn't Tigrayan, and uh, he, he began to sort of I guess, depower the the Tigrayans so that they had less power than what they did before. So we have to elaborate a little on what David said there because in order to understand the Tigray conflict, you have to know a bit about Ethiopian politics. From the mid-70s to the early 90s, Ethiopia was ruled by a Marxist military dictatorship supported by the Soviet Union. In that time, the country was embroiled in a civil war between this government and Ethiopian and Eritrean rebels. Eritrea borders Ethiopia, hence its involvement. In 1991, the rebel forces overthrew the Marxist government and installed a new federal system. 
Now, this new government basically consisted of a coalition of four parties, each of which was based on ethnicity. And one of those four parties was the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front. Now, they wielded outsized power due to their prominence in the military struggle of the 70s and 80s. This coalition dominated Ethiopian politics for the next 27 years, and during that time, things improved quite a bit in Ethiopia, albeit from a pretty low base. It remained a relatively corrupt country with an authoritarian power structure. And over time, the Ethiopian people became more and more disenchanted with this. In 2019, the three non-Tigrayan parties broke away from the coalition to form their own party, the Prosperity Party, under Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. Abiy Ahmed was really came in as, a, as, a, as quite a, as a, a very popular leader because the Oromos are uh, the two big groups are the um, Amhara and the Oromos, and they're about sixty more than sixty percent of the population of, of Ethiopia. And when he came in, he was he was very popular. It had been a coalition government of four different groups, and the TPLF had been sort of the leader of of that coalition. Mm. So when he came in, um, he promised to make it more democratic, which he did. Um, he made peace with the Eritreans who they'd been at war with for, um, well, certainly uh, had, had conflict with over, over the period of the, the previous 20 years um, and was rewarded with the, the Nobel Peace Prize. For me, nurturing peace is like planting and growing trees. Just like trees need water and good soil to grow, peace requires unwavering commitment infinite patience and goodwill to cultivate and harvest its dividends. But of course, when you take away the power of one group um, that has been used to power for all of that time, I mean, you upset a number of people and that's exactly what happened. And there was a number of things that came to a, a bit of a head in 2020 when the, they were going to have parliamentary elections because of COVID, Abiy Upman decided he wouldn't hold them. But the uh, Tigrayans went ahead anyway and had their own elections. That angered him a, a lot. Regional parliamentary elections went ahead despite the federal government postponing polls due to coronavirus. Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has called it illegal but has ruled out responding with force. This is the latest challenge to his authority as he struggles to hold together a nation of over 80 ethnic groups. Uh, there was some talk about the Ethiopians um, and Abiy Ahmed. Uh, moving on Tigray, the Tigrayans sort of got in front of that and um, attacked the largest military base in the north and in, inside of Tigray. And that sparked the, the, the conflict that uh, we have now. And the conflict in, in many respects, and still is, quite was, was uh, the country in general was supportive of it because they felt that the Tigrayans had, had, had been in a, in a strong position for, for too long. And as you said, the corruption and, and, and various other things had gone, got out of hand. So it, it, um, it was a popular, since a popular war, but it's become a very dangerous war now for Abiy Ahmed because he's now uh, he underestimated the the, uh, the the power of the Tigrayans. Is this one of those conflicts where there are clear sort of goodies and baddies? You know, I mean, looking at this from the outside, you know, you see that one side has a Nobel Peace Prize winner as the prime minister, and you think, well, okay, clearly they are the 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 good ones in this situation. But I get the impression that it's actually it's it's it is not that simple. No, I think I, I, I do think there was a, a fair degree of animosity towards the Tigrayans by by people within the, you know the wider Ethiopia as a result of their rather lopsided um, 
ability to hold power. I mean, they, you know, they held the reins of power for more than 20 years. I mean, I remember going and seeing the chief of staff of the military um, three or four years ago, um, who was a Tigrayan. The backbone of the army was Tigrayan. I mean, even the peacekeeping troops, and we had three battalions of peacekeeping troops in South Sudan when I was there. Uh, about 20, well, nearly 20% of them were um, were Tigrayan, 25% of them. I mean, they were certainly disproportionately represented compared to their population. Um, and this has been one of the, the, the big issues. I mean, when when you attack somebody's homeland, and particularly a mountainous homeland like Tigray, mm-hmm. what happened with, on, on the battlefield was the Tigrayans pulled up and out and went up into the hills. And a lot of these places they'd been fighting from in, in the in the early 80s and the 90s against the Marxist government, so they knew how to do it. Um, but they were also very skilled military people because most of the generals and the backbone of the military, the senior parts of the military, were Tigrayan. So they had a, a disproportionate degree of, um, you know, intellectual firepower on, on, the, on the battlefield. And so as a result of that, I mean, they turned the war around. And in June, they won a series of very, very uh, important battles. And now they are, Tigrayans are poised 350 kilometres from, from Addis Ababa with seemingly nothing really to stop them from going into Addis if they, if they wanted to continue down that, down that road. That's, that's absolutely fascinating because one thing that I was a bit confused about was because I had also seen that the, the tide of battle had turned in favour of the Tigrayans and, and it made me wonder. I was like, well, you know, we're talking about 7% of Ethiopia's population. How does a rebel force like this in the middle of a global pandemic you know, amass the resources and the weaponry that is required to sort of fight a war? Well, I think, um, I mean, military experts that I've either listened to or spoken to in the past have, have, have talked about the fact that, you know, the Tigrans do have a sort of a occupy the, the, the military structure and strategy they have, they've always dominated on. But then also, in addition to that, what Ethiopia did do was to push forward some of the paramilitary groups from different parts of the country and put them in the front lines. Well, they were decimated. I mean, and uh, look, people are talking about uh, death rates and tens of thousands killed on the battlefield. And certainly in June, the uh, Tigrans took thousands of Ethiopian troops um, prisoner um, when, when, they, when they moved forward. And that's created all sorts of problems as well, because, of course, you've got Tigrans living in Addis. I mean, it's a, it's, it was a Addis Ababa is a sort of a mounting part of all of these various groups. And, um, of course, the Tigrans themselves out there are, um, are being picked off and, um, and being persecuted as a result of the fact that they are Tigrayan and uh, the people there are worried that they would be the sort of the insiders that might uh, um, rebel and r- rise up against the government. So it's creating all sorts of other complications as, as, the, as time goes on. Let's talk a bit about the human cost of this conflict. You mentioned the lives lost, certainly the military lives lost and numbering in the, in the tens of thousands, but what about the humanitarian issues and also, I suppose, the, the knock-on effects of war? Because I understand the, uh, a really ferocious famine has, has spread through um, Ethiopia as well. 
According to the United Nations, more than 350,000 people here are experiencing catastrophic food shortages, while nearly 1.8 million others are at emergency levels. Global leaders are raising alarm about widespread famine in the Tigray region of Ethiopia, but they're saying that this is a man-made disaster with food used as a weapon of war amid ethnic conflict in the area. It's led to a flood of reports of widespread pillaging, destruction of health facilities and either occupation or obliteration of farms and crops. Just last month, a worker from USAID was killed in Tigray, the ninth casualty of an aid worker since the conflict began. And hundreds of rape victims pour into this hospital in Mekele, Tigray's capital. Many of the women so badly injured, they're unable to walk. Tigray was pretty much self-sufficient in food before this war happened. But, I mean, obviously when there's about 2 million people estimated to be displaced as a result of this conflict. So, I mean, we're talking really big numbers. Um, and now there's a, a, a very serious shortfall in food in, in Tigray. The UN has been stopped, uh, certainly in the last month, as far as I know, the, the, the UN has not been able to deliver any supplies into Tigray. Mm. And they were certainly restricted severely um, up to that point. Today, before the United Nations Security Council, the Secretary General criticized the Ethiopian government for recently kicking out UN aid workers. He urged the government to allow aid to flow into the northern region of Tigray, where for almost the past year, Ethiopia and its allies have been fighting an ethnic regional force. Um, and whenever there has been any criticism of the government, they have been uh, made persona non grata and told to leave the country. So several UN, senior UN people have been uh, kicked out of the country because they've, just, they've uh, spoken out against what, what's been going on. So it's a, a very, very uh, difficult situation at the moment and um, it's, it's, it's hard to see how it's going to be resolved. But if it's not resolved and there's not aid supplies able to move in the coming, uh, in the coming weeks or months, the, the impact of that on the, on the local populations is, uh, is, is, is potentially catastrophic. What are the options that are actually available to an organisation like the UN when it's assessing this kind of situation, a, a civil war like this? Well, it's, it's important to see the UN as sort of two parts. I mean, one is the UN that sits at the Security Council, and, and that's a, basically a collection of states that come together in the UN Security Council and makes decisions. And if you look at that area, um, part of the, the UN, where, the, where it's, you know, states coming together, it's been somewhat fraught because there hasn't been a consensus that's come together from all of the 15 members of the, of the Security Council in particular. China and Russia have been opposed to some of the stronger language that, that the, the US and other of the Western states on, on, the, on the Security Council have come up with, largely because they have a, well, particularly China has a very strong view about interfering in, in countries' internal problems. Mm. Uh, whereas the US thinks it's, uh, and, and you know, the West thinks it's, uh, it, it's gone beyond that. This is about people. Um, it's not just about a country and its internal problems, but it's been, it's on a massive scale. So unfortunately, there hasn't, um, it ha there hasn't been any very consistent, strong line that's come out of the Security Council. The other part of the UN is, is effectively the, sort of the bureaucratic or the agency side of it, which is the, the, the agencies like the World Food Programme and UNICEF and the World Health Organisation, etc. And they simply haven't been able, able or permitted to move and to do their jobs um, as they have wanted to do. And when they have spoken out, as I say, they have been, um, 
have been ejected out, out, out of the country. So it's, uh, it, and I've been in the situation myself, it's, it's, a, it's a very, very frustrating place to be where you can see massive need but um, unable to be able to go to places and to be able to alleviate that need or certainly address the conflict. I mean, the reason that I ask that is it's a natural question to at least to think. Surely preventing or sorting out these sorts of situations once they arise is the exact purpose of the UN. And if the UN can't sort something like this out once it has started, then what is the point of the organisation? Yeah, yeah, no, and a lot of people will say that. What's, why is the UN being so useless? Well, the UN is made up of member states, and if member states can't come to an agreement on how to go forward, how do you possibly go forward? So we all, it all kind of hinges around that basic fact that the UN is made up of a of two parts, effectively, a political arrangement where it's, a, it's effectively a meeting place to try and resolve conflict and a larger um, professional organisations of, of people who are doing their professional job, like a Ministry of Health might or a Ministry of Education might or something or other in a country. So if you don't have, for example, people say, well, why don't you send peacekeepers? Well, you'd have to get a vote in the Security Council to do that. Um, and that would have, I mean, first of all, I don't, that's not an answer, but you would have to get, certainly you would have to get agreement in the Security Council at the moment. You don't have any agreement in the Security Council, so that's not, that's not likely to happen. So at the moment, there are a lot of individual attempts at trying to put together a peace agreement or certainly get to a place where the two sides can stop fighting and start talking. But if the two sides don't want to talk, um, it's very difficult. And um, up to certainly now, Abe Ahmed has absolutely totally refused uh, to talk and wants to continue on. And that's after coming under extreme pressure from the United States, which uh, has got the biggest aid program in the, in the region and um, has, arguably has got the greatest influence. So um, I think it will, it will have to wait. A peace agreement will have to wait until, as often happens, you have that point where both sides have come to the um, the realization that actually more is going to be achieved for them through talking than by winning on the battlefield or not winning on the battlefield. Yeah, and I guess that is often preceded by horrible, costly loss of life and 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 living conditions. But that's sort of the way that it goes in these situations. Again, dispiritingly. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, look, there's. You know, you can imagine if these two sides are fighting, and they, it's and it's ferocious and it's huge. We're on, we're talking, you know, tens, hundreds of thousands of people on the battlefield. Um, there is no military in the world that will want to put itself in between those two when those two don't want to stop fighting. Yeah. So, and and the US, um, which is you know by far the most powerful military in the world, is. Um, uh, you know, in, in, in the last 20 years has been involved in Iraq and in Afghanistan and, and, and other countries. I mean, certainly um, Ethiopia does not warrant that sort of a, an intervention. So it, you're stuck in this sort of, you know, terrible situation where, where people are suffering immensely, but yet there is seemingly not a, um, a clear way forward at the moment, despite enormous amount of effort. I have to say, don't people don't think everybody's sitting back doing nothing. I mean, you know, I've got colleagues, one of my, uh, a friend of mine who's, who's the, the US um, envoy there, Jeff Feltman, has, has been there constantly trying to um, 
broker something there, but it's you know it's got to it's got to depend ultimately on the motivations of the the two sides. Um, and on one side, one at one point, Abe Ahmed and the Ethiopian government was pretty certain they were going to win in inverted commas this war. And now it's turned around and now the Tigrayans are saying, well, you're not going to win and now we're going to make the demands. Um, and the demand that they are asking for or demanding at the moment is that uh, the Prime Minister steps aside and they have a transitional government. And that is completely um, unpalatable for uh, Abe Ahmed to, to, to step aside, even though he's facing um, you know, the Tigrayan army just down the road. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansel and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to David Shearer. Matewa. <laughs>